Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Mary Seacole wasn't afraid of the open ocean or a blank slate. She went towards war rather than away from it and walked through discrimination as if it weren't there. She wasn't even stopped by the terrifying force of the British bureaucracy. Here's a bandage for you and a hug and have another drink, won't you, my son? Because Mother Seacole is going to make it all better. Let's talk about Mary Seacole. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1855, the first train ran from the Atlantic to the Pacific on the Panama Railway. U.S. citizenship laws were amended, and all children born of U.S. citizens abroad were granted U.S. citizenship. U.S. Congress approved $30,000 to test camels for military use. Walt Whitman's book, Leaves of Grass, and John Bartlett's familiar quotations were both first published. Several things were patented, kerosene, the sewing machine motor, the calliope, and the Bessemer steelmaking process. King C. Gillette, who was not a king but the inventor of the disposable safety razor, Paul Deschanel, the future president of France, and Andrew Mellon, an industrialist, were all born. Tsar Nicholas I of Russia and Charlotte Bronte both died. And in 1855, entrepreneur and medical professional Mary Seacole arrived at the Crimean War and into history. Mary Jane, we think Grant, was born in the year 1805 in Kingston, Jamaica, the daughter of an unnamed woman who, in the History Chicks tradition, we shall refer to as Mama and probably Captain James Grant of the 60th <laughs> Regiment of Foot, a Scotsman who was based with his men on the island, which is about the vaguest first paragraph we have ever had, I think. <laughs> Full of disclaimers, because even 1805 is discussed as being possibly incorrect. It's what's on her headstone. So let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> the usual details are just lost in the midst of time. Historians think that James and Mama had at least another daughter together, Louisa, and at least Mama had a son named Edward, who may or may not have been James's child. <laughs> um, I read an article from the 1800s in which the man said they conducted us to Grace Blundell's Hotel in East Street. And the hotel in question, Blundell's Hotel, was where our Mary grew up at least part of the time. So Mama may very well have been named Grace. Yay, a name. That's great. That's great. That's more than most places cite. Her father just drops out of the narrative when Mary was just a child. So can we put him away? Well, sure. He is definitely a shadowy figure in the background. People think he was around until Mary was around 10 years old. And then either he died or was transferred back to England or maybe he left and lived a whole second life. His regiment was called the King's Royal American and had come from their base at Cowes. Isle of Wight. Liaisons, even long-term ones between British officers and local women were routine enough on the island that the locals just rolled with it. Though uptight British visitors had a lot to say on the way home. <laughs> Okie dokie. Well, Jamaica at the time of Mary's birth was still a British colony, though its heyday of profitable sugar production was nearing an end. And it was a good thing, too. 
there were almost 300,000 enslaved people still held in bondage by their sugar planter owners on this island. There were less than 30,000 white people living on the whole island. I do believe that Papa's regiment was stationed there to keep order after the revolution, the famous one that took place over in Haiti. It's like one revolution after the other. America says no more kings. France says pas de roi, you know. And <laughs> Haiti just said no more of any of it. It ended with success for the rebels the year before Mary was born. So tensions between the white planters and their enslaved people were at an all-time high. Numbers being what they were, companies of soldiers in red coats were a deterrent to organized unrest on the island. There was actually another battalion stationed nearby on uh, Barbados for the same reason. Okay, that's all I've got on Papa. <laughs> Shall we wish him good day and give him a nice curtsy? There were free people of color on Jamaica, and Mama was one of them. Her origin story is kind of lost to history. It's speculated that perhaps her mother had been a slave and Mama was the result of a union between her owner and uh, one of his slaves. But she was a free woman of color. And within the Black society of Jamaica, there was a social hierarchy. The lighter your skin, the higher up you were. It was unfortunately as simple as that. Mary never... Uh, called herself a person of color. She described herself as yellow, but I guess yellow is a color. I don't Here we are in 2019. I want to emphasize that we are not referring to her as yellow, which of course in our time is spectacularly offensive, no matter how you mean it. Mm -hmm. But in that time, it was used offensively, but she claimed that as her own title. So it's not us saying it, it's Mary. Yeah. And Mary also said later in her life, I just want to put this out here, quote, I have a few shades of deeper brown upon my skin, which shows me related. And I am proud of that relation to those poor mortals whom you once held enslaved and whose bodies America still owns. So she knew her heritage. Right. She was proud of it. Socially in Jamaica, she couldn't claim it because she wanted to distance herself as much as possible from the slaves that were on the island. She wanted to identify with the British. Yes. And she did have three white grandparents. Right. Mama operated an inn called Blundell Hall, which in times of need was turned into a hospital because Mama was also a healer, which they called a doctress, which I still contend would be a spectacular podcast name for a woman hosted medical podcast. I offered <laughs> that to a surgeon that was going to have a podcast and my person was offended and did not take that up. And if you're looking for a catchy name, trademark that thing now. <laughs> yeah, I hear I hereby release my claim to it. Doctresses had experience with tropical diseases. Imagine that. Unlike these weedy noob doctors the British people kept sending from home. Didn't we talk about this in the Marie Laveau episode? Mm -hmm. You know, the natives don't feel these diseases as we do. Well, no, it's called developing an immunity. Creoles who fell victim had largely left us in childhood. You know, they'd already faced it and either won or lost and now they're immune. Well, the new arrivals from England often collapse straight off the boat. And that might be how Mama met Papa in the first place as a patient and nurse situation. Blundell Hall or Blundell Hotel. It's written both ways. It was great, wasn't it? It had this <laughs> portico where people ate local food, like plantains and cassava cakes and fish with pepper sauce, limeade made from fresh cane juice, squeezed right in front of you, and limes picked right off a tree in the courtyard that you were sitting under. 
It was spectacular and exotic to everyone that stayed there. The rooms had these nicely polished wood floors and wicker windows instead of glass because I assure you, you want a breeze. And you slept under a mosquito net. It was the worst thing about Jamaica, visitors would say. Not the prevalence of poorly treated slaves. Oh, no, mosquitoes. Where do those tropical diseases come from anyway? Yellow fever, dengue fever, malaria? Bad air. Evidently, not mosquitoes. <laughs> no. Well, Mama knew what to do for the poor sufferers, even if no one seemed to understand where the diseases actually came from. Mary loved to watch her mother at work and learn just as naturally as you might paint if your mother was a painter or build things. If your dad or grandpa or mom was a builder, you know, you just watch the grownups. She learned a lot about the principles of first aid. I guess we'd call it surgery, yes, and the ingredients of traditional medicine, quassia for malaria, which is actually lab tested now to be very beneficial. And I would like to drop in a Louisa May Alcott reference. Louisa May Alcott mentioned drinking out of a cup made of quassia wood as an antidote and as a tonic in a book that she wrote called Eight Cousins. The seafaring uncle came bearing a quassia cup for her to drink her milk out of, which I think it makes things very bitter. So the milk probably... It tastes very good. <laughs> Bitter melon for lady problems. Sarsaparilla for arthritis. The island was full of roots, leaves, bark, fruit, seeds, all parts of a plant that Mama used on her patients. And Mary saw and practiced not only ingredient preparation, but basic nursing techniques, bandaging. Cleanliness was very important to the doctresses long before it was important in Western medicine. She used to practice, Mary did, on her dolls and her <laughs> any pets that would stick around <laughs> during her playtime. And Mama was effective and Mama was famous as a healer and as a proprietor of the best place to stay in Kingston. But Mama was busy and couldn't always be in charge of Mary's education. We had talked about this in the Queen Lilo Kalani episode about how children were raised kind of like by the village. They were not always raised in one particular house. Well, Mary grew up in a household with a woman who, unfortunately, we don't know her name. Mary refers to her as her patroness, but her patroness treated her as if she was one of her grandchildren. Now, Mary may have been a servant there, but it's highly unlikely. Mary may also have been related to her because this is a white woman. And um, Mary was raised in her house, so it might have been a relation of her father's. All these questions in her history, just really, it was like, oh, I wish we could track it down. But people have tried and had come up empty-handed, unfortunately. This patroness raised her in a very loving household, and she made sure that she was educated. She learned how to read. She learned how to write. And she learned how to appreciate literature. So she was an educated child. She was a child of privilege at this point. You know, not the way we consider it now, but she was educated and she was light-skinned in their community. And that would have put her in this position of privilege. Isn't that a relief, though, finally, to have a happy and busy childhood? Yes, <laughs> Full of supportive adults. We don't get that too often around here. A good education, a practical education over at Mama's house, and adventure. Let's fast forward a little to when Mary was around 15. I cannot believe this happened, actually. She traveled with some Creole companions, possibly relatives of her mother's. So let's just call them cousins. All the way to... London. And this was her dream come true because Mary was obsessed with Great Britain. She was so proud of having a Scottish father and likely a British grandfather on her mother's side. She called Britain, quote, home. 
It's fine. I know people obsessed with England who don't have half Mary's claims on it. (laughs) But the cool thing now is you get on a plane and you can be there in a matter of four movies on your iPad, you know. But in 1820, it took around eight weeks to get there if you were unlucky with the wind. Even if you watched, get this, all of Game of Thrones, all of West Wing, every season, even the bad ones, and every single episode of Friends right in a row and took time for sleep, you wouldn't even be halfway there. (laughs) I can imagine. I would love it. I would catch up on my sleep. Yeah, we don't know if Mary liked it or not, but just based on her personality, once those first few days when you're seasick wears off, I bet she enjoyed it. At the time, women to go to the bathroom, they had to get on the side railing and kind of lean over to do their business. So I imagine for Mary, that would have been kind of adventurous. For other women, I actually, for other women, it was disastrous because women did fall over, not necessarily on her ship, but in this time. They would tend to purposely not drink water so they wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. I have done that on many a road trip because I'm a married person. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just one trip. However, you know, you can't do it for eight weeks. No. I don't know why they didn't bring their gravy boats, you know, with them. Mm, good question. Maybe That's carrying it up the stairs is a little. Yeah. And where were they going to? I mean, they'd have to put it somewhere. Like dump it overboard instead of dumping themselves overboard. I don't know. Easy for me to say because I don't have to carry a bucket <laughs> of urine up the stairs in front of sailors. I, You know, maybe it was just as embarrassing. But Mary loved London. Once she got there, she loved the history. She loved the bustle. She loved the novelty. She is a person to whom newness is exciting rather than afraid. Maybe she was not a possessor of that hormone that makes you feel afraid. Like the fight or flight thing was just not there. No, not at all. And she walked as if she belonged everywhere. She does tell a few stories in her memoir. One in particular, she was walking down the street one day with a friend who was of darker skin and like had happened several times during her trip. Boys on the streets started to mock them for the color of their skin. Mary didn't think they were talking to her, thought they were just talking to her friend. Well, because she described herself as, and I quote, hardly darker than any of their brunettes. Right, exactly. exactly. And she had gray eyes. She said, obviously, they're not talking about me. No, but my poor friend, the friend didn't take it like Mary did. And she started lipping off to these boys, which I'm sure did not result in a very uh, pleasant exchange. But Mary thought it was hysterical. (laughs) Oh, Mary. (laughs) The cold, though, blew her away. She described it as fingers reaching under her clothes to kill her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the coldest it has ever been in Jamaica um, that I can tell is 64 degrees Fahrenheit. I swear to you, if they pull out their sweaters, I will laugh. Well, there was ice, though, in the drinks in Jamaica, which I don't 100% know where that came from. Um, definitely ice was for drinks, not for the steps. <laughs> she was not happy about that at all. That's really the only downside, even though the racism was there. She just was... You know, I guess it's because she had high status as an educated person in Jamaica. And maybe she had had a self-confidence vaccine down there. You know, well, it worked. Her childhood worked in that regard. There's almost nothing I admire about this woman more than her lack of doubt about herself and her abilities and her place in the world. So thanks, Mama. Thanks, Patroness. And maybe even Mysterious Papa. I don't know your contribution, but I just thought I would give you a 
um, but you know, that's invaluable to have armed her with that mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Well, she stayed, they all stayed for a year in London. When you have four months travel time, you got to make it worthwhile. And she spent the whole journey back scheming how she was going to get back to London. So when she got back to Kingston, she got busy. She began to spend the next year pickling things, making jars and jars of preserves and jellies, any type of regional food that she could put in a jar, she did. Mary had been inspired by those markets she saw in London. People who had once lived or visited the tropics were hungry for a taste of their adventure. Oh, rich people especially. Rubbing her hands together. (laughs) That's exactly what I can give you. Some of the things that she took sound really good. Sorrel jam, which has cloves and cinnamon and cardamom, which I don't 100% like. It tastes like soap to me. But sorrel is kind of this bright pink tart tree that you can grow in Missouri, too. We should just plant some sorrel. Sorrel lemonade is super good, by the way. I've Um, never had that. But I do want to ask you, do you have the same aversion to cilantro that it tastes like soap? Cilantro does taste like soap to me, but I also like it. So I don't know. I don't know where I fall in that hereditary (laughs) genetic problem with cilantro. Um, Actually, cardamom doesn't taste like that. It tastes like camphophenic. No, it doesn't. Yes, it 100% does. Yeah, neither. I love both of those things. So (laughs) they don't taste like soap to me. (laughs) Brussels sprouts, however. (laughs) Back to the better tasting things. She had jars of these bright red bird peppers, which look like tiny Christmas lights. She had bright orange mango chutney. Escovache pickle, which is sort of like tropical jardinier. That's the thing that my husband is so fond of. They serve it on fried fish. I'm still stuck on jardinere. What is that? Oh, um, <laughs> oh, well, pickled like carrots and vegetables in brine. And a lot of times you can get hot jardinere. You put it on a, um, like a, in Chicago, you put it on a, like a Portillo's sandwich. Oh, Portillo's. Okay. Now I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do. I lived in Chicago oh. for five years. Yeah. Okay. I love me some Portillo's. <laughs> I'm not a fan only because my dad demands that you you eat the sandwiches wet and to everyone else that means they take it with tongs and dunk it in au jus and my dad only permits one napkin <laughs> so i can usually get through about an eighth of it before my napkin is out of use and i have to stop eating <laughs> Gross. so the staple though the the one that she made all the money on was guava jelly and i have again got a louisa may alcott reference in one of her books jack and jill which was written years after this two little kids get in a sled accident a poor one and a rich one and they devise this little um like cable car mailbox that goes between their houses so they can talk to each other because the little girl has broken her back and has to lay down and the boy who's the rich one asked her in a letter do you like gorver jelly all these people keep sending fine things and i'm going to send you a pot of it and it's rich people food. Even 70 years later, it's considered rich people food and a delicacy. And now it's very sad for her that it spills in the basket and dumps all over. So she never did get to eat the Gorver jelly. <laughs> but I just want to say, like, Mary Seacole had an eye for what was what and who was what because she brought over the things that the rich people really wanted to buy. So there it is. And she's 18 at this point. So she's an 18-year-old entrepreneur, actually. 
and she takes her all of her stuff and she goes back to London to sell it all. She sold it on the streets. She sold it to people she knew. She sold it through connections of people. She sold enough that she could afford to live there for two years. 21-year-old Mary came back to Jamaica after her successful tour of merchandom in London. Her patroness was very, very ill, and Mary came back to take care of her. The patroness died a number of months later, and this had been Mary's first real solo experience with nursing. Not just nursing the person's body, but, you know, holding hands, listening, telling stories, cheering the person up. It's someone you love. Um, the patroness did die in Mary's arms. It, and that must have been crushing for her. Yeah. Afterward, Mary moved on a permanent basis to her mother's house, the Blundell Hotel, and began to master both of her mother's careers. I would guess her mother was very glad to have such capable hands around, though Mary was not very good at taking direction. She was good at going in the right direction, <laughs> but Mary's the boss of Mary. Um, she ended up taking over the managing of the servants, especially she took charge of the kitchen staff and became quite a notable cook herself. And I would only assume she learned from the people she managed in addition to Ma. So she had the, the sense to learn from people as well as be the boss of them. Mm -hmm. That's rare enough. What a great internship. I mean, just put it in modern context. You're you know, you go through college. That's what she did in London. You you get to your year that you can do an internship. That's what she's doing with her mother. You know, she's learning the ins and outs of business. In her other role, she nursed the poor military men who had contracted diseases almost inevitably and been dosed nearly to death with calomel, which is full of mercury, <laughs> mm -hmm. caused your teeth to fall out. That's a side effect that you don't want to see on your bottle. Uh, over at the dirty old hospitals, there was a new military hospital, which was better, but only because it was new. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hadn't had the chance to dirty itself up yet. At the Blundell Hotel, the men got clean sheets. They got healthy food. They got herbs to make them sleep. And they got a listening ear. They got hugs. They got someone to hold their hands when they were feverish and tell them it, it's going to be okay. That's mostly what you want when you're sick anyway, isn't it? Someone who notices the washcloth on your forehead has gone warm and gives you a nice cool one. Someone tells you to sit up and drink this juice, honey. You want your mom. And as young as she was, these grown men, officers, most of them, she started to call her boys or her sons. Lovely. Her managerial expertise got her some work at one of the military hospitals where she managed whole teams of, quote, colored nurses. That's just the terminology. It's not from me. You know how the spirit of a team comes from the top down? Mary, the boss, had a sense of humor. She had genuine concern. She made such an impression on a whole generation of those nurses, not to mention the patients. Over the course of the next decade, she met and helped men in 10 different regiments. She imprinted herself on their hearts, and the doctors allowed her to watch medical procedures if she wanted to for some reason. <laughs> but no way would a woman be allowed to perform, quote, real medicine frustrating. That's frustrating. <laughs> and it wasn't her color. It was her gender. She, her get out instinct became activated. I think sometimes the frustration was just a little too much for her. She didn't have enough money for the big trip to London, but occasionally she'd indulge herself with merchandising trips to nearer places. 
Mary always said she had Scottish salt in her veins, meaning she wanted more ocean travel. So her next trip, she packed up. It wasn't to London, but it was to New Providence, which is an island, another British colony in the Bahamas. And again, she brought things with her. She brought pickles and preserves and sold them. But she also imported some things. Seashells that they had on New Providence were not the same ones they had in Jamaica. And she knew that all those British military families would be all over them. So she brought back seashells, which were terribly exotic in Jamaica, which makes me laugh. But she (laughs) sold them out. They were a great seller for her. So now she has an import-export business. She also made trips later in this period to Haiti and to Cuba. She didn't like Cuba all that much, although she did return with rum and some tobacco. You know, she made something out of it. She never went back. The biggest news to ever hit Jamaica happened when Mary was 29. All slaves over 21 were freed instantly. This is the vast majority of people on the island. And it was a momentous occasion that Mary does not mention once in her autobiography. And I wonder if it was because she felt like it had nothing to do with her. The hierarchy among people of color in Jamaica was rigidly maintained and none shall pass the line. As for the sudden economic woes of plantation owners who couldn't afford to operate with paid workers, I'm not even playing a small violin about that, also had nothing to do with her, really. Like 95% of her business was with the army. Didn't affect them at all. Mm -hmm. So I I just don't know why... This did not even seem to rise to the importance of writing it down. I don't know. And it wasn't like they were walking down the street one day and said, oh, let's free all the slaves. There was an uprising. There was burning of homes and fields by the slave population who said, I'm done. That's what resulted in their being set free. Mary and others like her were more worried about possible unrest now than anything. What with 300,000 former slaves that now had to make a living. When Mary was 31, she met and married Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole, a British man, a white man. Shocking. Mary's mother and father's arrangement, long-term commitment, acknowledgement of children, financial support was common enough, but no halfway measures for our Mary. They were married legally. Edwin Seacole himself was born in Essex in 1803, purportedly the sixth child of Anna and Thomas Seacole. Or was he? Let's hear the family legend. Family legend clings to the belief that Edwin was the out-of-wedlock child of Lord Admiral Horatio Nelson and his mistress, Lady Emma Hamilton, which would make sense. His name is Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole. According to the legend, as soon as he was born, he was handed off to Thomas to be adopted and raised with their family. Evidence for? Question mark. Well, Emma and the Admiral had done this once before. Their first child, Horatia, a name that is never going to hit the baby name wizard. No. They had done this sort of hiding once before. Fake birth certificate, fake parents' names, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Ms. Hamilton was in the area at the time of Edwin's birth and known to be pregnant. And Papa Seacole, the apothecary, was also the only deliverer of babies within striking distance. And much later, in her will, our Mary Seacole left a diamond ring in her will that, quote, was given to my husband by his godfather, Lord Nelson. Interesting. So there's the Seacole family history, but actual history from historians 
say that Emma Hamilton had a little daughter also named Emma in 1803 who died shortly after birth and never met her father. So you be the judge. Well, the new Mr. and Mrs. Seacole decided to set up their own shop, not a hotel, not a convalescent home, but he'd been a merchant before and so had she. So Seacole's general store, it was. To the town of Black River it was a good choice for a merchant near the ocean on one side and right by one of the very largest rivers in Jamaica on the other side. So trade was brisk. It was a good area for them to start their business in. Previously, it had been a slave port, but with slavery no longer legal, Jamaica had switched gears and it was now a logging port. So the big rebranding of the area was going on. They were getting new businesses. There was a racetrack. There was a spa. There was lots of people. On paper, this is a great place to start a business. So it was repurposing itself in this new economy. So it was great. Let's get in on the ground floor. And it should have been epic. But Mr. Seacole was ill from the very beginning of their relationship, never strong. In fact, they may have met as patient and nurse, just like Mama and Papa had. And somehow this project never really got off the ground, really. There was moderate success, but it deteriorated as Mr. Seacole's condition worsened. And the powerhouse behind the business, we all know who that was, was using her energy and time to nurse her husband, who she really did love. She really did and competitors won. That's just the long and short of it. And after a few years of struggle, years, they made a good go of it, I think. You know, they did everything they possibly could to make it work, but they just couldn't. It was apparent not only that they had failed, but that Mr. Seacole did not have long to live. So the Seacole family closed up shop and moved back to Kingston to Blundell Hall. Unfortunately, they arrived just about the same time as a massive fire that was going to destroy about 10% of Kingston. Mary pulled what is kind of like a Dolly Madison. She's in the house. They see the fire coming. She and her brother and sister and Edwin as much as he could. They're trying to get things out of the house to save them. And they know it's, you know, futile. Something's going to happen to their house. But she just kept trying and trying. At first, the tension in Kingston was really very high after this incident. It was blamed on the recently freed slaves. And Here's a bad thing. Evidence was that there might have been something going on because all those things that Mary and Edwin and everybody along the street were hurriedly throwing out their windows to try to save them were being scooped up by bands of looters who were carrying it away as fast as they could. And God, talk about hitting someone when they're down. The very important things they tried to save got carted away into the wilderness. Not cool. But the foundry finally came forward and calmed at least those waters. They admitted, well, we made a mistake pouring the molten metal. It hit a wooden thing, caught on fire. And then right next door was the sawmill and all the sawdust. Who thought that was a good idea? (laughs) And from then, no real water system in town. So what you're doing is basically emptying the wells. After a while, there was nothing left to fight the fire with. 
The ocean stopped it on one side. What stopped it on the other side? Because everyone was very afraid. The embers were glowing. All it took was a change in the wind and the rest of the town would be gone. So these engineers had to kind of blow up houses as fire breaks. And everyone had to cart the pieces away just to make a little, you know, boundary where the fire couldn't burn outside of. It was devastating. And Mama began to build a replacement hotel, the new Blundell Hotel, a little bit further down the street. But they couldn't build all of it. They didn't have the funds. And so they started with a small place and built on as they got enough money. Ultimately, you know, reassuringly, it would end up being superior to the old one. But it took a lot of hard work. They're back at the bottom again. And then Mary had another hit. Edwin's health had just gone down even more. And after eight years of marriage, he died. This happened only a year after the devastating fire followed shortly afterward by the death of her mother. You know those stress tests you take. Like, have you been through any major life events? She would never have passed that. She allowed herself to fall apart. She did. The first time I've ever seen it for about a week is all she allowed herself because she knew it was all on her now. Make or break. And she Mm -hmm. said, I was left alone to battle with the world, but I have always turned a bold front to fortune. She wasn't entirely alone. She had her brother and her sister. And gentlemen callers did come because here's a woman who owns a business. This would be a good woman to marry. Plus, she was so charming. But Mary wanted no more men. She was done with marriage. And about 40, she liked the image of being the widow Seacall. So she decided to put that on. And that's what she was going to be for the rest of her life. (laughs) I admire that. There is a student of Anne of Green Gables in one of the books. The third one, question mark. And the teacher asks all the little children what they want to be when they grow up. And one of the little girls quite astutely says, when I grow up, I want to be a widow because then I will be free to do whatever I want. It was an it was a very smart sentiment from someone so young. In this time uh, and place, a widow had more freedom than any woman. So Mm -hmm. Mary knew the deal. Even though her brother existed... And this is a time when that meant everything. Mary was the boss. This was Mary's house. She was the oldest, but let's face it, she was the boss. You know, there's no doubt that everyone in the family is like, yes, Alpha, (laughs) I will do what you say. And she took over. She also restarted her pickle and jelly empire to try to make some more money and became auntie or auntie, if you're Susan Seacole, to the troops. She built her fortune back up. She built her own reputation out from the umbrella of her mother's. For about six years, she continued this proprietress, doctress status, just building up the business, doing whatever she had to do to make it succeed. She's a woman who your husband would call good in the room. So she's making friends everywhere she goes. She's very charming, educated, very social. She dresses very well. She's always got ribbons in her hair and beads on her neck and a very nice dress on. She does the role well, too. Not only does she do the job, but she's a great figurehead for Blundell Hall. And she never forgot a face. If you pass through the hospital, if you pass through the hotel... She knew you, you know, and she, of course, was very memorable. And that's not even doubtful that they'd remember her. But she remembered the men, their names, their regiments, who they were related to, you know, what they had for dinner. She had a mind like a steel trap served her well. But the routine was getting to her. Once the hotel is up and running and it's ticking along, like I could install a proxy in here for whatever I do here. And she started to kind of Look around for another adventure. She cannot stand monotony or security. 
<laughs> well, without that excitement, you know, without that, I can see why she's wanting to do different things. She did get a little bit of a challenge, which, of course, she needs. It's believed that a steamer from New Orleans sent a load of laundry ashore, and the washerwoman who took it in, her name was Dolly Johnson, was the first victim of a cholera epidemic. This was a worldwide epidemic. It was the deadliest of the three at the time, and it was now in Jamaica. And no one knew what to do for cholera. None of the old doctresses of times gone by had dealt with this. There was no pharmacopoeia to rely upon that was trusted and true. You had to kind of make it up as you were going along. 32,000 people in Jamaica died within the year that the cholera outbreak was happening. And Mary did the best she could. She learned a lot along the way, but she mostly was just there to, you know, make people comfortable because she didn't know everything there was to know about cholera, unfortunately. But when it did subside, her brother Edward decided to head to Panama. He was going to start his own business. He was going to set up a hotel to take advantage of the gold rush. Going all the way to California was problematic for everyone. Either you got on a ship for half a year and go around the tip of South America, pass. Or you head west across the open prairie, same time frame, pass. Or you head to the very thinnest part of Central America, use up only a couple of weeks and then get someone to help you get all your stuff overland to the Pacific in a few days and catch another boat. <gasps> ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. We have a winner. Panama is what we'd call it now. But at the time, it was called New Granada. And Edward was sending letters home talking about what a wonderful place it was and what great business he was doing. That is just what Mary needed to read because she decided that that's what she was going to do. She was going to go help Edward. Now, whether he asked for help or not, <laughs> we don't know. I'm going with she no. <laughs> <laughs> but she got busy. She got people in her house for weeks. They made those pickles again. They made their jellies. They salted meats. They jarred fruits and eggs and vegetables. Anything that they could put in jars to bring and sell, Mary did it. Not only the food, but shirts, pants, coats. Every spare inch of the Blundell Hotel was taken up by some kind of factory. <laughs> I uh, can't imagine it was a very lovely place to stay. Mary herself was outsourcing medical ingredients and concocting medicines to make a big, giant steamer trunk full of hospital, you know, and suddenly it's all packed. I'm out, Louisa. Like, whoosh. All the mess is gone except for detritus on the ground. <laughs> the quiet is coming over the hotel like a blanket. I can only imagine those left behind have taken to bed with a washcloth over their eyes. Like, oh, my gosh, it's ended. <laughs> or Louisa could be going, finally. Right. Finally, I can do something. I am in charge. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the time when your kid goes off to college, you know, there's that senior year, there's all those activities, the dances, the last everythings and graduation. And then the summer you're getting ready, you're putting everything together so that they could go off to college. And then you take them and come back into the house and it's so quiet and their room is just a debris field of their childhood. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. That makes me sad. I'm still, I'm years away from that. Although I think mine's going to take a gap year to jump off of, you know, landmarks and break his <laughs> <laughs> arms and stuff. So maybe I have a little more time. <laughs> Speaking of adventure, well, Mary set off on her own adventure with a boy servant named Mac, a girl servant. Both of them were children. And a uh, 
a lot of confidence, a lot of overconfidence. <laughs> she dressed to the nines and set off. She did make a special point of saying on the way there, she had lost her footing and slid all the way in an indignified way down a muddy clay filled hill to a dock and looked like I don't know what. <laughs> I, I love it in her autobiography. She remembers what she was wearing. It was a light blue dress with a white bonnet and a dainty shawl. I mean, she remembers what she's wearing and she falls and she's just covered in mud and has to continue on her adventure. She had to be rowed upriver in a canoe for the last part of this journey. This is some Indiana Jones level making your way in the world. But at last, she arrived in the city and found, man, what did she find there? In New Granada, the former slaves that had been advised to move there and the native inhabitants were in charge. It was not the white people that were in charge. She was very wary of the white Americans she met because to them, she was no different than the slaves that were still working their cotton plantations over in America. And she had a strong aversion to a person that would not give her her own dignity. So she really did not like Americans at all. But she loved the spirit of New Granada. She looked around and said, it was wonderful to see how freedom and equality elevate men. And the same Negro who would have cowered before an American in Tennessee here might face him boldly. She liked it a lot, although she did not like the Americans at all. <laughs> and the place was packed. There was a pattern of activity. The town's name is Crucis. There was a pattern of, of activity of people coming in and heading west or people going back east. And they came in and then there was a lull and then they came in again. And she arrived when the town was full. You know, there was all kinds of dirty gold miners just being really crass and drinking and swearing and loud. And it must have been quite the hub of activity. Luckily, though, she did see a friendly face right off. Her brother met her with a smiling face and some bad news. He had no room. <laughs> he had no room at the end for her, for Mac, for the maid, for nobody. And she was going to have to find accommodation somewhere else. And the only place she could find to sleep at all was at another hotel with Mary, the maid, and Mac the errand boy sleeping under a dining room table that the owner had just thrown a sheet over like a makeshift tent and charged her big bucks for it too. So obviously there was a need for her hotel. That could not be clearer. But a crisis took hold of the town right after she got there. A man who was eating at her brother's hotel dropped dead and fingers throughout the town pointed at bro. Food poisoning. You killed this man. You're in trouble. But Mary took a look at him and she looked at the symptoms and she was whipping up mustard plasters because she knew exactly what was wrong with him. She had diagnosed it as cholera before Edward would even accept that the guy was sick. Everyone else would really, really rather prefer that it was food poisoning if it's all the same to you. But as one after another victim went down, <sighs> nope. It was true. Cholera. And the only medical practitioner around was Mary. I mean, there was a dentist. Yeah. <laughs> but Mary, functionally, for months, she battled cholera alone. She made calls in the wealthiest households and the poorest shacks. And I will say she did take a fee from those that could afford it, but she did not charge the poor at all. If you couldn't afford her services, she did not pull back. She would treat you just the same. The rich people were kind of subsidizing her work with the poor. She mm -hmm. saw hundreds of patients. She took copious notes. Her experiences here gave her 
I'm going to go out on a limb here, just as much knowledge of cholera as any medical doctor at the time, and likely 100% more on-the-job training than they ever had, because they're not going to get deep in it in the way that she was and see such varied people and get to try basically the same experiment over and over and over. She decided that she had to go a step further, and it was a grisly step, but she determined one day, after a baby died in her arms, that she had to do it. The baby's parents were already dead. There was nobody to miss this baby. She had done all she could do to save his life. And she was actually angry with the world and herself for not having been able to save, of all the people here, the one person that probably deserved to be saved more than anyone else, and that surely the baby wouldn't begrudge using it as, you know, a way to help others. And so she performed an autopsy. She bribed the man that was taking the baby away to bury it, and he stuck around to assist with the autopsy. She wanted to see what exactly it was that cholera was doing to the human body. And she did see some things. She never actually reported exactly what it was, but she did realize that the person was being dehydrated, that all the fluids were being sucked to one area of their body and not being used properly. So she began to treat things a little bit differently. She gave fluids. She had a concoction of boiled water and cinnamon uh, that she gave to people in sips as they could take it. And sugar and salt. It's like proto-Gatorade, if you think about it. So she was flying blind, yes, but so was everyone else. And this concoction was treating a symptom. What else are you going to do? But no one else is treating it this way, and it could have saved lives. You know, Mm -hmm. nowadays they use antibiotics and electrolytes. So she got half of it. And there you go. And cinnamon has an antibacterial quality to it. So sort of. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not like she had a Z-pack to give them. No. So, um, yeah. Well, after recovering from a bout of cholera herself, which was almost inevitable given the sheer scope of her exposure to it, Mary saw at last the cholera epidemic fade away. And now she had the same elevated reputation for healing that she had had back in Jamaica. Her name was known. She was famous. And when the building right across from her brother's place, sorry, bro, came available, (laughs) she took it over for her own hotel and she opened the British Hotel. A little bit of a misnomer. There's no lodging there. Just just food. This town was a magnet for ladies of negotiable affection and Mary wanted no part of it. Also, she didn't have a man living in the house and she was a little concerned about mayhem, I guess, and, and protection from mayhem. So it's easier to just run a restaurant. And she didn't have a whole lot of space. It was a long hut with a thatched roof and just two rooms in it. And it it was a mess, but she cleaned the whole place. She put calico fabrics on the wall. She put bows wherever she could. I mean, it would be garish to us from our decorating sense. Now there's no no white shiplap. (laughs) (laughs) What she said was the feminine touch was what was needed. And and it was just stage dressing, I think. This place is different than other places. Cleverly, though, she added a barber to to her staff. And he was kind of a loss leader to get people through the door. Oh, I got my haircut and hey, I'm already right here. I'll just walk in and get a meal. Pure marketing genius. Mm -hmm. She had tables for 50 people. So there's a dining area and then there's a kitchen area and another area that was just shelves with all of her provisions. All those things that she had brought from Jamaica were on these shelves to sell. It was kind of like a Mm, Cracker Barrel. (laughs) (laughs) She's on the vanguard of merchandising history. So she was a little 
um, behind the times on some news, though. She didn't fully understand that there was a part of the year where the travelers just stopped coming. The weather patterns changed. The currents changed. They had to go to a different place to go across. And so the traffic dried up. And most of the other merchants knew this and simply packed up and went to the new place. And she didn't also know that she'd only be getting the leftover travelers, the lower class travelers. Her arch enemies, the Americans, were scooping up everyone who had table manners and an education. She's like, Blurg, what am I doing? I'm spinning my wheels here. She also didn't know about the flood season. It was just... Uh, And after a couple of really botched travels back and forth between the temporary and the permanent home, she decided it was time to say farewell and call an end to this season of her life. And I'm not comfortable with this speech that a man thought would be very complimentary to her. The farewell speech of her customers that they gave her right before everybody said goodbye. I'm just going to say it. I am so sorry. Here it is. God bless the best yellow woman that he ever made. It's too bad she ain't more white, but at least she's several shades removed from being black. I'm sure if we could bleach her, we would and make her acceptable in any company. So raise your glass to our own Auntie Seacole. Auntie Seacole was having none of that. Oh, I assure you, her brother was right behind her, holding the back of her dress to prevent her from standing up and reacting. He knew, he knew. He knew, and she did. She fired back at the guy with a very eloquent speech that ended with, quote, Gentlemen, I drink to you and the general reformation of American manners. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay. And here's this. Speaking of Americans, ladies this time, if you can believe this, ladies who spit, brace yourself. Another delay on the way back to Jamaica. Some ladies, some fellow passengers spit at Mary's maid right in her face and told her they weren't about to ride a ship with a... mm, If British people want to take up with your kind, that's one thing, but we are not having it. Now, here's Mary. She had bought passage for her and Mac and her, she called her her maid, um, that little girl. And they had every right to be on the ship as much as these women did. She went to the ladies salon just like she normally would. And these women would have none of it. They were just throwing insult on her after insult. Mary went to the captain and he empathized, but the best he could do was give her a refund for her money and set her off the ship. So she was stranded for two days until the next ship came. Now, she wasn't laying on the dock with a sack as a pillow or anything. She knew people, obviously, still in town, but what? That insult was too much. Luckily, the next captain was an old acquaintance and there was no trouble. I mean, there was trouble, Because Jamaica had been gripped by a horrible yellow fever epidemic that was laying waste to everyone right out of the frying pan into the fire, Mary. Her own Blundell was back to a convalescent hospital again. This time, more than any other, she lost patience. It was all she could do to comfort them as they died. It was a bad strain. It even affected natives who had had this disease before, which wasn't usually the case. The officers at the nearby military base heard she was back. Woo! They perked up and they asked her, please, can you put together a squad of nurses, colored nurses, you know, who again, everyone thought were immune to yellow fever, which they were not. Um, 
I need you to put together a squad to come work at the hospital. And it was tough because so many people were sick. She had a hard time coming up with the numbers. She eventually did. And she sent what she marketed as bonus apprentices, also uh, children, because she had to fill out the numbers and that was how she could do it. And the army itself was buzzing about impending war. Tensions were growing halfway across the world. It all started so small at least as far as I'm concerned, over (laughs) a religious controversy between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church of France. Who was going to be in charge of the Christians that were living within Turkey? Who was the authority over them? It was a big deal. It was, you know, tensions were high. And Turkey had to decide in favor of somebody, and they decided in favor of the French Catholics. Oh, oh. Russia was angry and Russia blew up some Turkish ships. And now what was happening? Allies all over the world were lining up to support whichever friend they had in the conflict. So it was all centered on this little triangle that sticks out between Ukraine and Turkey, right in the middle of the Black Sea. It's called the Crimea. Mary had to look it up on a map. We all had to look it up on a map. (laughs) Mary, don't worry. (laughs) Woo, that's far away, thought Mary. But... It was a good cause, she thought, preventing the bad guys, in her mind, in this case, the Russians, from taking over the Crimea. And what would they do there? They'd build forts, probably, and then they'd send troops who knew where to attack my sons, my boys? No, can't let that happen. And these boys were being recalled from everywhere and being sent to the Crimea. And she wanted to join them. Surely the British would see the value of a woman trained in emergency medicine, the cholera experts, as it were. Hundreds of men in the Crimea were already dying of cholera. It's spread through contaminated drinking water, though no one knew that yet. They're constantly building the wells downstream of the latrines. This is a problem. And it was a problem in the Civil War, too, so they're not going to learn that lesson for a very long time. And there were famously in the papers stories about how there were no nurses and few doctors to treat the sick or the injured in this conflict. There was public outrage thinking of their loved ones dying alone and neglected because there was no one to look after them in their last hours. It was horrifying. Mary also had a business reason to leave and and start on a new adventure. She had bought stock in some gold mines while she was in uh, Central America, and the business offices were in London, and she needed to do business there. So she had a business reason, but she also had this philanthropic reason. You know, she wanted to go save her sons and be part of this war effort for this country that she was a member of. So Mary took another giant leap went back to London and went directly to the war office to apply to be sent out as a nurse. And no one took her seriously. The clerks there just like, "Mm, maybe her age, definitely her color. She was dressed in bright colors and was expansive in her movements and was generally just weird. And the men there sent her to the quartermaster's office, who treated her exactly the same way and shot her over to the medical office. It was very disrespectful of every single person who didn't know what to deal with her. Each time she waited patiently to talk to anyone in charge for hours. And she's not going empty handed. She's got letters of introduction to these people saying, you know, saying she was a medical professional and that she had all this experience and she would be a valuable asset. Just take her on. But she's 49 years old, and she's a woman of color, and doors were just closing in her face. She heard that a woman named Florence Nightingale had put together a team of nurses to go to the front. Yes. Unfortunately, you just missed them. They're already gone. 
Mary heard through an acquaintance, though, that one of Florence Nightingale's assistants was still taking applications. Yes. Unfortunately, if there were any openings, we would not take the likes of you. There were some things against her, her age, her color, her assured and confident manner, and believe it or not, her resume. All that experience actually made her overqualified for the positions that Florence Nightingale was trying to fill. Florence Nightingale wanted nurses who knew their place and obeyed orders. And, um... Is Mary that person? Can you see Mary? <laughs> she yes, is ma'am. No. <laughs> Any human on this earth against her better judgment? No. N-O. No. N-O. Um, Even the way she was trying to get in, there are lots of records of people who applied for these positions. They're still in existence, but there is absolutely no application for Mary. So she was trying to get in, not the traditional way, which I was probably another strike against her. Right. Mary was... Actually, for the first time in this story, devastated to the point of tears by her rejection. How much help could she have been to the boys? Why was everyone mocking her and rejecting her? It's so frustrating. Now, we know it's not a good fit. We know from here she never would have been happy taking orders from someone or following the rules. And after a little bit, her natural self-confidence reasserted itself. Why am I depending on other people to accept me? I don't need them to do what I want to do. Oh, no one believes in me. Interesting, because I believe in myself. Um, She had a very, very healthy attitude as far as I'm concerned. If you don't like me, obviously there's something very wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) It was the opposite of Louise Brooks, who we just covered, who had the opposite, you know, if you do like me, obviously there's something wrong with you. See, this is a much healthier way to think. Another thing that keeps happening in Mary's life is that she knows somebody, you know, she knows a guy. Well, she knew a guy. (laughs) She, by sheer coincidence, ran across a man named Thomas Day. He was not only a relative of her husband's, but he was a former patient of hers in Panama. He had seen her at work. He was also a trader. He was a businessman just like her. The two got together and they decided to form a business to set up a shop in the Crimean War. We're not going to mess around with going through Florence Nightingale. We're going to set up a business, which is what she does really well. I have connections of my own. I don't have to sit here in London talking to you chumps, taking all your guff. (laughs) She went right from this meeting with Mr. Day and went to a printing office and got advertising printed. Watch this space, you know, for the opening of Mary Seacole's, what is it going to be called? New British Hotel. And she sent them off to the Crimea. They started out to the former kind friends of Mrs. Mary Seacole, late of Kingston, Jamaica. It's more like, morning, everybody. Auntie Seacole is on the move and I'll be there in a minute. It was really, really (laughs) smart and full of nerve and um, full of confidence. And I really approve. She set off for the Crimea as soon as her cargo was assembled. In Gibraltar, she met up with some more of her boys who screamed, Mother Seacole! 
her. She's getting <laughs> off the boat for this like little walkabout. The ship was doing some business. She could do some sightseeing. First thing, I, this is just like my husband. You could be anywhere and some guy will know him. Even when she got on the ship, she knew the guy that was in charge. So he made sure that her provisions were properly stored away and kept an eye on him. And she knows everybody. So over a drink, their treat, they absolutely forbade her to set foot in the Crimea, that hellhole, they called it. They'd just gotten out with their lives. Why would you go back there? Don't do it. Well, will I be of use to you boys there, though? Oh, we, we wished for you, for sure. And that was enough for her. She was more determined than ever to get there and set up shop. She met another old friend, a doctor officer, who offered her something of great value. A letter of introduction to Florence Nightingale. This was like a personal passport, if you, you know what I mean. Etiquette required the person to see you if you had a thing like that. The person whose agent in London had blown her off so thoroughly and insultingly was going to be forced to meet with her. I'm going to carefully pack this away, thought Mary, <laughs> just in case. She loved that idea. And she was going to be in the area. She arrived in Constantinople and immediately she hired a young boy that was walking around to help her out, to help her with the language and help her, you know, procure travel. His real name was something Greek, but she couldn't pronounce it. She called him Johnny. He loved her. He was so loyal to her for her entire time here. That's the kind of person she was. I do love her tales of Constantinople. She was complaining that all the little rowboats were too tiny for one stout lady. Like her... <laughs> Booty and her weight made them real tippy. And more than once, she said she almost became intimately familiar with the temperature of the water. <laughs> People were just shocked at this unaccompanied woman, just tromping around, all independent. Mary chose to interpret it as approval, which just sums her up. Johnny was able to hire a fishing boat, which is a little more stable, to take her to the hospital where Florence Nightingale was stationed. It was in Scutari, which is in modern day Turkey. Now, why she was going, I think, is up for debate. Was she going to place a uh, courtesy call between two medical professionals or was she really trying to get in with Florence Nightingale? Whichever that is. And I don't think we know. Do well, we? let's just tell the story and then you guys can interpret this whatever you want. She got to the hospital and forgot all about the letter of introduction. Honestly, the first person she encountered was a doctor she had known from Kingston, as keeps happening. After this happy reunion, he took her around the hospital, which is four miles of hospital wards. You know, thousands and thousands of people. There's some men here from the old regiments. You got to say hi. Mary put her hand on foreheads. She held hands. She sat on beds. She reminisced. Many men cried when they saw her. It was almost as good mm -hmm. as seeing their own mothers. A long... Along the way, she rebandaged people's bandages if they were a little too tight. She washed faces. She tucked bed sheets in. Passing doctors called out thanks as they bustled by. And she forgot about everything but her boys and all those new boys. Somebody's boys. Mother Seacole. Every corner, somebody's calling her. The whole day just flew by without her noticing. And it was uh, too late and dark to get one of those boats to take her back to her bedroom on the ship. What was she going to do? So Mary had a meeting. She asked to see Florence Nightingale. She needed to ask her a question. Eventually, she got to Florence, who she didn't describe in terrible terms, but just that she was a small woman. Florence said, can I help you, Mrs. Seacole? And Mrs. Seacole said, yes, I need a room for the night. And Florence said, okay. And that was it. That was like the whole conversation. 
Yeah, I think it was very hmm, irritating to me that the assistants preemptively said there's no openings, there's no jobs here, which is like her experience of the day was patently untrue. There's jobs for a hundred ladies in here and you couldn't even feel it. But they made a point of telling her that before she got in to see Florence Nightingale. Oh, no, no. She said, I'm just, I'm passing through on my way to the front. I just want to pay my compliments to a colleague, etc. And I'm sure Florence Nightingale bristled at the presumption of equality. They were as different as could be. They had different goals. They had different lives. They um they had different methodology. Just the way that they treated patients was very different. Florence was organized and hierarchical and she was insistent on propriety and she was also to her detriment hemmed in by regulations, military regulations in a way that Perhaps our friend Mary was not. Certainly, <laughs> our friend Mary was a free spirit and an independent operator. But Florence had to kind of pioneer a whole new method of nursing. She could not afford to have loose cannons because her whole mission would be derailed. She was kind of a snob. She was kind of a racist, but so was almost every white person deep down that she encountered. But she was really, really, really devoted to nursing. She wanted to elevate the position to one of respectability. She wanted to help the men. That was her big position. The world needs both kinds of helpers. You can't have everyone just be random angel like Mary Seacole. And you can't have everyone run on a track like Florence Nightingale. Even a track she had to build herself out of nothing. Sometimes you have to be flexible. And Mary always had great admiration for Florence Nightingale and her work. And the compliment was not returned. Still, Mrs. Nightingale, compelled by the power of the letter, assigned her a bedroom in the basement. No thanks for 12 hours on the wards, but in her defense, she might not even know that happened. Thus ends the meeting between mm -hmm. the two Crimean Wars, most famous women. That's it. That's the only interaction they ever had. <laughs> and the next morning, Mary left. She had places to go. Thomas had gone ahead to Balaclava to find a place to set up, to, you know, do the the pre-work before Mary got there with all the supplies. And she had to get there. So she did. She just left. The place, Balaclava, was indeed a hellhole, just like those men had told her all the way back in Gibraltar. Someone later described it like this, quote, take a village of ruined hovels and houses in the extreme state of all imaginable dirt, rain to pour into and out outside of them until the whole place is a swamp full of filth. Great. Let's go there on our vacation. Yuck. <laughs> Mary looked around for a place to set up shop. She networked like no one else could and rode over to meet the boss of the local Turks, a royal pasha. This is a big deal. This is not a um, Joe average. You know, he loved her company. He loved her secret stash of beer. And he promised her the manpower and the materials and the security that she needed to build her new hotel. It was made out of mostly demolished buildings and broken ships for the most part. <laughs> Flotsam, was it? Or Jetsam? I guess I never know the difference. I just think they come hand in hand. I didn't know that there was like, it's like upside and downside. I think Flotsam yeah. is the stuff that just floats away and then Jetsam is stuff you jettison to save or, or something. I that, don't know. Yeah. So, yes, for the most part, the nearest Home Depot being 120 years away. That's what you had to build your hotel out of. <laughs> I, I love your voice, said the Pasha. Was there a romance? They said the Pasha was dropping his handkerchief in front of Mary Siegel, which is a gender role <laughs> reversal, which is hilarious. Oh, no, no. I have three wives at home. Okay. 
Just friends, evidently. That's good. That's a valuable contact, though. And I don't think she could have really done it without him. But my question is, what did Thomas do? Because Mary got there and she just got to business. You know, she talked to people. Thomas was even afraid to talk to the admiral of the port because he thought he was so mean. And Mary's like, "Okay, fine, I'll do it because I have to because he wants my ship out of here and all my provisions are on it. And that's where I'm sleeping right now. And it can't leave. So she goes over and she charms him. And sure enough, the ship can stay as long as Mary needs it. What did Thomas do? Wrung his hands, mostly. During the weeks of construction, Mary endeared herself to all and sundry. The crusty old admiral? Yes. All the doctors? Yes. And it helped that she showed up physically every day with tea and sympathy and jokes and stories and a helping hand to all the wounded men who passed through this settlement on their way to Florence Nightingale over in Scutari. So her actions made people change their mind about her. Like, who is this person? Anyone that didn't know her soon found out who she was and what she was all about. Technically, her title was a sutler. She was a trader and a merchant to the military. That's the title that she had. Her New British Hotel never had the name New British Hotel. It was always referred to as Mrs. Seacole's Hut, which tells you just how nice it was. <laughs> and it never, the time she was there, it never got fully completed. But it just got, you know, built on as, as she found pieces, I guess. But it was going to be not a hotel where people stayed, but it was going to be like she had in Panama. It was going to be a restaurant and a store all over again. But this time she had the added business of being a caterer. Her customers weren't just the military. They were also the wives of the military and spectators because going to watch the war was a thing. It was a thing to do. You went out and you watched from a hill where it was safe and Mary would bring a catered picnic to you and you could watch the war and she would make lots of money and you would have a wonderful experience. Don't know what to say about that. I mean, seriously, I don't know why that's awesome. I guess we watch movies about war, so I guess there weren't movies. No, but you know what there was? There was salmon and oyster and lobsters and tobacco and baked goods and any meals that she could make, she did. Did you see the menu? It was I like did. Welsh rarebit and fish and Irish stew. I mean, it's like three different courses. There's desserts. She had this famous no milk rice pudding. I don't know how it was made. I tried to find the recipe. I couldn't find it. But she was famous for it throughout the area. There was wine and cider. There was sangria. I want to go here. <laughs> well, she was not starting from scratch reputation-wise either. She knew so many people from before. Her promo material had really hit. Everyone was so excited. Almost they clapped when she came down the gangplank, you know. But she wasn't just famous here. And here is my evidence. A famous French chef passed through on his way to help Florence Nightingale with um, hospital kitchens. And he was out here in the field to look at a traveling kitchen for the army because he had once made a mobile soup kitchen for the Irish famine. So he was going to go ahead and deploy this to the army. So that's why he's there. And he was absolutely starstruck to have met the famous Mrs. Seacole. Like, oh! <gasps> Oh my goodness, I'm so happy. And she's like, oh, Pashaw, I sold a lot of your products in my stores over the years. You make a fine product. You could be my son too. Have a drink. <laughs> I mean, like, he is the most celebrated Victorian chef that lives in the world. He served dukes. He served princes. He was the chef at the reform club. To her, 
he's a fellow merchant and he's a worker for good. You can be in my club. She was just equal to anything, wasn't she? Yes, she was. She had actually missed the big battles. Three of the major battles of the war happened before she even got there. So when she got there, there were systems in place. So I'm not saying it was easy for her to set up, but it was easier than it would have been if she had arrived, say, a month or two earlier which was good. And she wasn't the only business like hers in the area. She was just the most famous. Mrs. Seacole's place was this giant complex of restaurant and storehouse and stable. And she had a store, the generalist of all the general stores I've ever heard of. You could buy anything you had a mind to over at Mother Seacole's. So there's the merchant side that is paying for the other. See, if the establishment won't let you in, you go in the back door. She traveled out to active war zones with supplies for customers and stayed to deliver comfort and aid to anyone she found that needed it. A few times, she had to drop to the ground to avoid an explosion or a bullet. Although being in the active war zone was not her usual place. You know, back in at base was her usual place. Sometimes she encountered some peril. She used the money she got from her upper crust clientele at the hotel to pay for her nursing work with the men. Just like she used to do when she was treating cholera. She took the fees from those that could afford it and treated the poor for free. What isn't there to like about this woman? Well, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> if you're Florence Nightingale, this part isn't going to make you grumpy. She always implied, Ultimate Seacole, that she and FN, you know, she and Flo were on the same mission, that they were sisters in arms. And, oh, yes, name drop. I know Flo. Isn't she great? Mm, yes. And I know how that feels when you have your own mission, if you're Florence Nightingale, and you do not want to be seen as endorsing something that is foreign to the way you like to operate any more than you like being tagged on Instagram by people. You know, there's some things <laughs> you don't feel <laughs> like you can control. And it's irritating. Florence Nightingale began to loathe Mary, I think, swanning around doing whatever she wanted, uh, administering brandy, which was not done. And she had no boss. She had no rules. It was galling to Ms. Nightingale. How could people even like that loud, classless person who is not on my level? I'm sick of hearing about her. Perhaps one day we can do Florence Nightingale and we can put her irritation into context. For now, yeah, I would just I... like to say there's no love lost. And, and, Maybe a little investigation into Florence Nightingale's own struggles, which were towering. Um, she had a lot to overcome. And here is this like person kind of chipping away at what she was trying to build. It's like if you're the guy in the grocery store building the, the pyramid of Coke and shoppers keep coming by and taking pieces of it, you'd be mad too, I think. Even though you were selling Coke. <laughs> Even though you're you selling you're, Coke. Yeah, which is the whole point of the whole thing. I don't 100% know the whole story, and I don't want to loathe Florence Nightingale for her attitude toward Mary. Mary did bring some of this on herself by kind of implying that they were, you know. Yeah, the relationship that didn't exist. Yeah, so, so there's that. But after all the trauma and all the risk of the war years, whatever they might have been, the last year of the war, as it was kind of a peace negotiation going on in the background and no one wanted to be the hero, you know, kind of turned into, I guess, Mardi Gras? I know. <laughs> Which suited Mary just fine. Yeah. And I don't want to comp keep comparing Florence Nightingale to Mary, but Florence Nightingale during this time, she had to offer her soldiers, she had magazines or maybe a lecture. 
But down in Balaclava, it was a bacchanalia. There was dancing and drinking and theater and musicals. There was all kinds of mayhem going on. <laughs> she loaned some of the officers her dresses. She didn't get on herself as an actress. That was just too far. But the men folk were going to play ladies. And so she let them wear her clothes. And she said, even with the corsets, their figures were shameful. <laughs> I love it. Champagne flowed like water. The menus were fancy. This is all great. Good humor reigned everywhere. Finally, finally, only the fun parts, you know? Yeah. Well, and good commerce, too, because all these people had very little to do while they were waiting for the peace treaty people to do their thing far, far away. So they were buying things. And Mary and Tom were starting to buy more stock and have it you know, shipped to them like they've been having done the whole time to get ready for even more sales. They're kind of getting in the hole financially, but all these people owe them money, too. So they're business people. It's going to work out. She did extend a lot of credit during this time. And since her philanthropic work was drawing to a close, I mean, just naturally, she decided to focus on the commerce part. So I can't blame her because the mother seacole part out in the field was over. It wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense trying to keep that going when it didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like some blame is attached to her for focusing on commerce, but what is she supposed to do? It gives us another role model for a businesswoman. I think that's important too. So I'm glad she focused on the commerce. But when the orders came to evacuate the Crimea, Mary's life sort of vaporized along with her financial security. Merchandise was still coming. Even though the customers were all gone, she had to sell her equipment. She had to sell her stock at auction. And mostly Russians came to the auction, the enemy. The low prices that everything went for infuriated her and frustrated her to the point of when the wine came up for sale, the winning bid was less than a tenth of what she had had to pay for it, much less retail price. And she lost her temper and grabbed a hammer and broke every last bottle of it. I'd rather the ground drinks it than any of you. Yeah. It wasn't like she didn't have a plan. Her and Tom decided to disassemble the hotel and bring it back to England and set up yet another store like it in another military town. They had a plan. They didn't have any more stock. They were out of money. People owed them that weren't paying them. But it wasn't like she was just going cold home. She had a little bit of a plan in her head. But it just didn't work out. Mary went back to England And her creditors were pressing on her, but the debtors couldn't or wouldn't pay her. And Mary was forced to file for bankruptcy at the age of 51. Letters began to appear in the papers after the news of the bankruptcy came out. For shame, my brethren. Are we to allow our mother to be forgotten? Has this short space of time erased from your memory what we owe to Mary Seacole? I myself am going to pledge money to show her my appreciation. Who will join me? And the donations started to roll in. The articles published about her great deeds and the comfort she had brought and the like emotional attachment that men had to her would not stop. She wrote to one of the men, um, actually a nobleman who had supported her the whole time. And um, <laughs> I love this little throwaway sentence. Gave him permission to send it to the Times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you? Um, and, and she wrote the following. 
I'm fully aware of the kind feelings you and the army have toward me, and this knowledge tends to sustain me in my present difficulties. Far from regretting my visit to the Crimea, I feel proud indeed that I've had an opportunity to gain the esteem of your lordship along with that of many others in the army. I would rather suffer my present poverty with the knowledge that the Almighty permitted me to be useful in my small sphere than have returned wealthy without the esteem of the brave defenders of our country. It's good. I think it's very good. So it was a mutual admiration society. She decided to write her autobiography, which has an amazing title. Unlike many books we talk about, this one actually has a good title. It's called The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. And it was published about a year after Mary had returned from war. Now we're like, wow, she wrote a book in a year. She didn't actually write it as much as she dictated it. She had an editor who was with her and she could just tell him the stories and he could tell her where to add things and he could clean it up a little bit. Not that she couldn't have written it if she had time, but she didn't. So the result is such a delightful read. This may be my very favorite autobiography we've ever read. It's so charming. It's not a very politically correct book. Be warned. But it is exuberant, and you can hear her voice, and it was popular at the time, too. The first printing sold out in a little more than half a year, and it made her into a genuine celebrity in England, not just among servicemen, but among everybody. Mary's noble friends even asked Queen Victoria if she would contribute to the fund for Mary, and... (laughs) Well, one of Queen Victoria's own nephews was one of her favorite sons, you know. So here's the thing that Queen Victoria contributed is the permission to use her name in the appeal. Like Queen Victoria recognizes her contributions to our brave soldiers, blah, blah, blah. And it was Queen Victoria's street cred, (laughs) if we can say it that way, (laughs) that made the donations flow. So Mm -hmm. So that's enough. Yeah, if you read about it, there's kind of a Seacoal Fund number one, which was the initial thing. But the problem there was she had to pay off her debts before she could take any money in herself. And any events that they planned for her to raise money cost. So it didn't raise a whole lot. But then she published her autobiography, had renowned fame. And then Seacoal Fund number two was the one that the queen endorsed. So it was like this very long stretch of fundraising in different stages. It was good, though. She was able to go back to Jamaica, buy some property and build a house for herself. At 65, Mary Seacole wanted to go provide aid to the soldiers of the Franco-Prussian War. And she applied to the nonprofit that eventually became the Red Cross, by the way, to go help. And I'm sorry to say that Florence Nightingale blocked her. Her brother-in-law was in charge of this movement. And Florence Nightingale wrote back, she kept a bad house. She made the men drunk. Anyone who employs her will introduce much improper conduct along with any kindnesses. Yeah, it wasn't a really great letter. And at the top in her handwriting, it says burn, which is like, please delete this after you read it, brother-in-law, which he didn't do. Mm, Yeah, so we have that little window into the rivalry that I'm not entirely sure Mary Seacole ever knew was happening. So she stayed home. Then she went to London, and then she made friends with the royal family, like you do. She was a privileged guest of Princess Alexandra at Marlborough House. They had this friendship. Some say that Mary was her masseuse, but it sounds more like just like, come on over, Mary, and let's have tea and do stuff. Like um, Mary wrote home for somebody to send her a bunch of mangoes on ice because Princess Alexandra was intrigued and wanted to taste one. 
that is not a masseuse client relationship. Mangoes? <laughs> the queen herself commissioned a sculpture. Um, it's a bust of Mary done by Queen Victoria's nephew, Prince Victor. <laughs> so la da well, but I think you've made it. When the queen wants a statue of you, I think you can just cross off, you know, famous. <laughs> You're famous. <laughs> and there's a portrait. There's a one portrait of her that was done about this time that's very famous. It's now in the National Portrait Gallery. So it was, you know, there's artwork of her. That's how famous she was. That portrait does have some controversy surrounding it. Even now, Mary in the picture is wearing three medals. She's also wearing them in the statue that Queen Victoria commissioned. She's also wearing them in a portrait. She sat for a photographic portrait. Um, So you have to assume that those are a part of her daily regalia. She didn't earn any medals. That's the problem. But she never claimed that she had won any medals. Um, There's no record of anything, but... Think about how many men she knew that owed her a debt of esteem and wanted to show it before they left her. Out of all the men she knew, for three of them to have awarded her one of their medals is perfectly reasonable to me. And it wasn't a crime to borrow them or lend them until long after Mary had departed the earth in 1955. Who knows where they came from? And it's kind of a bummer, like a lot of the other details of her story that we just don't know how they got there or who gave them to her. And there for the lack of documentation goes another good story. By the end of her life, she was a wealthy woman living in comfort, living in style in London. The last 10 years of her life were busy and happy and full of companionship. Another thing that we don't often get to say, and I'm very glad for it. Mary Seacole died on May 14th, 1881 of complications after a stroke. She was 76 years old. She was buried in St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in London. And after her obituary appeared in the London and Jamaican papers and people who knew her started to die, her memory started to die too. She was forgotten about Really, until well into the 20th century. And then in 1954, a nurses association in Jamaica named its headquarters after her. They've discovered her again. In 1973, a group of Jamaican nurses in London restored her headstone. And it's lovely. There's palm trees on it and there's color. And it says, here lies Mary Seacole, 1805 to 1881, of Kingston, Jamaica, a notable nurse who cared for the sick and wounded in the West Indies, Panama, and on the battlefield of the Crimea. It's lovely. She never called herself a nurse. (laughs) Not once. If anything, besides being a merchant, I'm sure she called herself a doctress. Those nurses and their headquarters in the 1950s started to turn the tide of forgetfulness. And Mary Seacole's name is back in the air again. Not as a pioneer in nursing, or a combatant against oppression, or a groundbreaking member of a race or of her gender, but as herself. She's a person who was able to make a place for herself in a world that wanted to shut her out. Now, it is time. Is it time? So, books. And, oh my. Do you want to see some fighting? Do you want to see some fighting? I would like for you to read the reviews of a book called Mary Seacole, The Making of the Myth by Lynn McDonald. (laughs) I 
would like to tell you that the extent to which the Florence Nightingale people hate the Mary Seacole people and vice versa is very, very apparent in the reviews of this particular book. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no need to fight. They weren't even in the same business. You know, they weren't using the same methodology. They weren't, I don't know. I Is there room for more than one? It's out of control. I'm disappointed in every single one of them, you know? And, you know, I read that book. At first, I thought it was going to be a bad portrayal of Mary. I was was afraid to read it, but I did anyway. And it really wasn't. It, to me, it read like a thesis. You know, like uh, there's lots of citations and uh, she quoted another book quite a bit, but I, I didn't think it was all that horrible. I did see the reviews and I did see another website. We'll, we'll talk about that later in the websites, but... Yeah, not good. I liked, I didn't hate it. Well, this author is a member of parliament. That might account for the very professional nature of the citations. But mm-hmm. I guess my point is there could be more than one woman honored for a, a thing. This has a lot of the how dare you in it that I don't like, at least the response to it. You know, so mm-hmm. so there it is. There it is. It's yeah. really bad. Both sides demonizing the other. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, Moving on to a really good biography of her is Mary Seacole, the most famous black woman of the Victorian age by Jane Robinson. I relied heavily on this book because I didn't have a lot at my library, sadly. And then, of course, you can't miss Mary Seacole's very own autobiography. No, it was number 62 on the Guardian's list of 100 best nonfiction books. They said it was a gloriously entertaining autobiography. It's also online. We'll link you up. So you don't have to buy it. Although I did buy it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) You know why I bought it, though, is because the copies my library has are in-house only. You can't check them out. They're in the research section. And unlike times gone by when I had a lot of free time to go down there and look at primary sources, etc., I can no longer do that. The times I had to go look, they weren't open. So I bought it because there's no sense being frustrated that I can't read something. (laughs) And Amazon delivers right to my door. So... It came in a couple days and it it used, it was under five bucks. Well worth the investment. Do you have any more books? You know what? There are some children's books, but they all have the title Mary Seacole. So there's kind of no point, you know, we'll just put pictures of them up because they all have the same title. (laughs) (laughs) Mary Seacole. They do. And a lot of them um, have different slants to them. Like a lot of them just are. So she was a nurse. She nursed. She did nursing. Which she did, but she was also a businesswoman. I wish there was more material that talked about that, you know? And I almost wonder if it was the integration of commerce with her nursing activities that made Florence Nightingale disparage her so much. Like she dirtied up the profession by doing this other side work. When when it's like, you can have it all. You can have many parts of you. Your personality. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, people screamed Mary Seacole wherever she went. They cried when they saw her, when they were sick. I mean, obviously, the men that she, quote, nursed regarded her in that aspect also. But that wasn't all she was. She also liked to drink champagne and slip the posh of beer from her skirt pocket. And, and you know, <laughs> she liked to live like a life, you know. I think she loved her celebrity, too. Oh, Whereas yeah. Nightingale came back and she said to Queen Victoria, look, I I want to just go to bed for a while. I don't want my name out in the press. I don't want the celebrity. I want to stay away from it as much as possible. Whereas Mary was like, yes, I'm here. Welcome. (laughs) There was an event where the soldiers went over and picked up her chair and like carried her all around the field screaming and singing a song. And she was all about like, oh, Pashaw. Oh, oh, do keep taking me around in the air. (laughs) You know, (laughs) she was all about it. And they would like, you know, raise and lower her and sing the song. That was like the high point. (laughs) 
<laughs> for her whole career. It was great. She loved every second of it. Okay, yep. so they're making a movie. Super good. I just read in Variety that a major motion picture starring someone named Gugu Mbatha. I could be wrong. Yeah, I got nothing. Um, is being made, um, I think it is in pre-production right now. They're not filming yet, but I look forward to that happening. I'm also super excited about the Harriet Tubman movie that's coming out, by the way. Oh, um, oh my goodness. Trailers yes. of that one are already out. So we've got two of these really good, um, well, I'm hoping it's really good, uh, historical movies coming out very soon. They had that one at the beginning of uh, Down Abbey when I went to go see it. And I was by myself and I'm like, oh my goodness, look, we know her. <laughs> One thing I hope that they focus on, and I swear to you, there's going to be articles written like, I bet you didn't know, blah, blah, blah. That military operation she led toward, I would say, toward the end of her life that freed all those slaves all up and down the river that one night. Um, People don't know that part of her story. And I think if they include it in the movie, which I don't know why they wouldn't, it's very cinematic and also true. You know, not that that really, maybe people don't necessarily care about that, but um, if they include that, we're going to see some think pieces and some analysis and that's going to be a part that blows people's minds. Yeah, I think so too. There was a short called Mother Seacole that was made in 2005, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So if you find it and have a link to it, please send it to me. There is a BBC documentary that I saw it on YouTube, but it's really heavy on pitting Nightingale, you know, Nightingale versus Seacole, you know, kind of thing. So. Watch it. I thought it was good. I thought the woman that played Mary Seacole was very good. But there's a heavy hand of the, you know, bad Nightingale, which, again, we can't reiterate this enough. Shouldn't happen. Yes. Enough room for two. There is a cartoon version of her story that is in two parts, around 15 minutes a piece up on YouTube that I found very informative and very suitable for sharing with children. So it's animated. Mm -hmm. I wish I knew how to animate things and do that stuff. So um, many points to him for doing that. I like those. Yes, they're very good. They're told in like a real conversational way. One guy, but I like it. As to websites, there's Memories of Blundell Hall, which is kind of a gathering of different articles from different papers in the 1800s about assorted tourists' visits to the various iterations of Blundell Hall. So I found that very informational. Kind of told me what the experience was being there, what it looked like, the fact that there was no glass in the window, the trouble with mosquitoes, the food, etc. So I loved that. Also, I fell down a tiny little rabbit hole when I found out she made barrels of salt pork because Laura Ingalls Wilder was always eating salt pork. And I actually never looked that up before now. And this guy does food reenactments from the 18th century, meaning the 1700s, but still... I imagine the technique did not change. And so you can watch a man make a barrel of salt pork in a video on YouTube. Also, <laughs> if you want, there's also a history of um, a history of that fire. The 1843 fire in Jamaica was famous and devastating and made news worldwide and goes into a lot more detail about how troublesome it was. Also, the Sawyer stove, the chef's creation that stayed in service in the British Army until 1982 which is a lot, unrelated to anything but my need to look up how much Game of Thrones you could watch on a trip over to England uh, in the 1820s, um, I found a site that I actually really love called bingeclock.com. And so you put in like... How many hours of friends are there? How long would it take to watch all of The Good Place? And it's already calculated it for you in days and hours. I was... So impressed. I'm like, how did you do that? <laughs> I mean, I calculated it all from, no, didn't. Just went to bingeclock.com. 
And I love that. There's also some background. Oh, this review on the contentious book. And I have to say, I am a little bit afraid of the NightingaleSociety.com because I ended up there by accident. When I looked for the making of the myth, I was looking for information on that book and encountered a vicious comma review on that site. And it made me a little afraid of everyone there because that was my first impression. <laughs> there is another site that kind of counteracts that. It's Mary C. Cold. Info. And there's a lot of information in there. And it seems as though the people that set it up, set it up just to dispel myths that like, like you had probably read on Nightingale Society and that was perpetuated in um, British press around 2004 by the Mary C. Cole Trust, which is another site you should go to. They've been put together to get money to raise a statue. There is a statue that was unveiled in front of St. Thomas Hospital in 2004, and it's the first statue of a woman of color in the UK, and it's of Mary C. Cole. But this info site, be prepared because they, they could very well, I was reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to listen to this podcast and they're going to put their points up on it. That's, that's how much these people look into this. If it's in the media and it has to do with Mary, they're on it as far as pointing out inaccuracies or myths or what, whatever. They did like Jane Robinson's biography, though, which made me feel good. Well, good. Well, good. Um, so the, on the statue is the text. I trust that England will not forget one who nursed their sick and who sought out her wounded to aid them and who performed the last offices for some of her illustrious dead. The Florence Nightingale Society disapproves of that wording, says she was never a nurse, had no associations with St. Thomas Hospital. Florence Nightingale did, and that it hurts Florence Nightingale's reputation to have a statue like that out there. It doesn't. And if you examine the words, is there any word of a lie in there? It doesn't say, you know, unlike that shyster Florence Nightingale who pretended to blah, blah, blah. It mentions not a thing about Florence Nightingale. So can't we all just get along? That's what I'm saying. I I do think we need to cover Florence Nightingale, however. I do too. I do too. Because she did a lot. Her contributions are astonishing. Uh, So, yeah. And not everyone can get along personally, and that is fine. And they never work together. And, you know, the only connection is the fact that, you know, the word nursing is in there and they were in the same area at the same time, but nobody would have confused them. There's no trademark infringement. There was great respect for Florence Nightingale when she came back. I mean, Queen Victoria offered her jewels and houses and money and a parade. And, you know, everyone thought Florence Nightingale was an angel and she did great work. So I don't want to allow the coverage of Mary Seacole to even think of ruining Florence Nightingale's reputation. I just don't understand why it has to be a seesaw with one on top and one on the bottom. No, I agree with you. Uh, Even Florence Nightingale has a drunk history. Mary Seacole does not. What? True. There is a Horrible Histories, however, that does a parody of the single ladies, <laughs> which is super cute. <laughs> the Mary info had some problems with that, too, on a factual point, but it's super cute. So I'll link you up to that, too. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our Pinterest board, um, not just for Mary Seacole, but for everybody. You never know what you're going to find, what rabbit holes you might go down, salt pork or statues or stamps or whatnot. <laughs> or sweaters. The One of the rabbit holes I fell down had to do with cardigan and raglan sweaters. I'll link you up. It has to do with the Crimean War and men. 
<laughs> I shouldn't let this pass either. I was able to look up a lot of Jamaican recipes online and escovache seems easy to prepare. So I'll give you at least that and perhaps a recipe for guava jelly. Ooh. And if anybody has a recipe for this milkless rice pudding, I'll make it. I'll report it back in the private Facebook group. <laughs> Probably a link now they would love- lead you to almond milk or or something like that. So you're going to be hard pressed. But no, it said milkless. It's just said no milk. So that would eliminate like goat's milk, right? They it had would, goats. It would eliminate the public admittance that there was goat's milk in it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Have you seen that? Um, I said Saturday Night Live where. Oh, no, it's part of The Office or Parks and Rec, one of those shows where they go to this very, very rich influencer's house and they ask her what the latest thing is. And she said almond milk is so over and soy milk is so over. What the world is talking about now is milk that is squeezed from an actual cow. And she looks (laughs) and she she smiles as if like hipsters don't even know yet about this. And the Nick Offerman character goes, um, that is just milk. And she pretends not to hear him. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. All right. Well, so in closing, why don't we leave you with some verses from the satirical periodical magazine called The Punch, which just before Christmas published a song to be sung, which I'm not going to sing, to Old King Cole. I'm going to leave you with four carefully selected verses. Dame C. Cole was a kindly old soul, and a kindly old soul was she. You might call for your pot, you might call for your pipe, in her tent on the coal so free. The sick and sorry can tell the story of her nursing and dosing deeds. Regimental MDs never worked as she in helping sick men's needs. She'd take her stand as blithe and bland with her stores, that jolly old soul, and be the right man in the right place who can. The right woman was Dame C. Cole. She gave her aid to all who prayed, to hungry, sick, and cold, open hand and heart alike ready to impart kind words and acts and gold. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on your favorite podcatcher. Well, the news is that London is sold out. It was very fast. We didn't know it was going to happen that quickly. So June it is, June 2020. A group of us are headed across the pond. So that's very exciting. For everyone else, what would you like from us? Would you like a Pinterest board? Would you like us to update you on a special Instagram feed? We have a lot of time to plan, so let us know what we should do. As usual, you can talk to Susan on Twitter and me over on Instagram and Facebook. Depends on the time of day. (laughs) Don't forget that we have a board for nearly every episode over on Pinterest with many a rabbit hole to fall down. The closing music today is called Get Up by Kyvin, and I chose it, I think because it's 4.30 in the morning. It reminds me of uh, 1984. (laughs) And honestly, I think that Mary Seacole would want you to dance and be happy. So grab your beverage of choice and seat dance in the car if you're on your way to work. Do what you got to do. But Mary has a message for you. And so do the 80s. Something clicked. Click. Something flipped. Flip. Some kind of fuel is blowing. A spark has been lit. You need to run. You need to run. Hell, you can fly. fly. So much adrenaline can handle it. 
Come through.